You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, Chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hello, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is October 17th, 2021, and this is episode 141 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll listen to a conversation about a Massachusetts lighthouse that's way off the beaten track for most people, Tarpaulin Cove Light in the Elizabeth Islands off Cape Cod. It's really not very well known, but it has a lot of interesting history. We'll also be talking about the Lost Lighthouse of Cuddyhunk, another one of the Elizabeth Islands. Before we do that, has anything interesting happened on this date in lighthouse history, Michelle? Well, on October 17, 1804, John Cooper, a plantation owner on St. Simons Island in Georgia, deeded four acres of his land at the south end of the island for one dollar to the federal government for the construction of a lighthouse. A 75-foot lighthouse tower was constructed, mostly made of tabby, which is a mixture of oyster shell, lime, sand, and water. The 104-foot-tall brick lighthouse that stands today at St. Simons Island was built in 1872. There's a museum in the Keeper's House. Yeah, I'll be visiting there in a few weeks as part of a trip to Georgia and South Carolina, and I'm really looking forward to it. I plan to feature St. Simons on an upcoming episode of this podcast. For now, let's tell everyone about the lighthouses at Tarpaulin Cove and Cuddyhunk and our guest. Sure, Jeremy. The Elizabeth Islands are a chain of small islands that extend about 16 miles to the southwest from the southern coast of Cape Cod. The islands, which were named for the Queen of England by the explorer Bartholomew Gosnold in the early 1600s, are the dividing line between Vineyard Sound to the south and Buzzards Bay to the north. There are seven major islands and 22 in all. Collectively, the islands constitute the town of Gosnold, the least populated municipality in Massachusetts. Coastal shipping traffic in the area was heavy by the early 1800s. In 1830, a total of 12,603 vessels were observed passing Cuddyhunk, the outermost of the islands. Cuddyhunk's first lighthouse was built at the island's southwestern tip in 1823 for $3,000. By 1860, the original stone tower was in poor condition and was torn down. A second story was added to the keeper's house, along with a short tower and lantern on the roof. Cuddyhunk Light Station was rebuilt again in 1891. A 45-foot-tall conical stone tower was constructed, along with an attractive wood frame keeper's house. A succession of keepers and their families lived at the station. The daughter of Cuddyhunk's last keeper, Simone Ponsart Roberts, recorded her memoirs in the book Everyday Heroes, the true story of a lighthouse family. The light station was demolished in 1947 because it was believed it was about to succumb to erosion. The Elizabeth Island's other lighthouse stands on Nishan Island, the largest of the Elizabeth Islands, at 7.4 square miles. Tarpaulin Cove on the east side of the island was for many years a bustling little harbor where the local farmers did business with the crews of incoming vessels. Seamen traveling through Vineyard Sound often stopped for a meal or a night stay at a tavern run for many years by Zacchaeus Lumbert. Lumbert established an early navigational light in 1759 for the, and I quote, public good of whalemen and coasters, end quote. 
Lumbert and his successors maintained the light for nearly six decades. The federal government authorized the establishment of a more substantial lighthouse on the west side of Tarpaulin Cove in 1817. A rubblestone tower went into service in October 1817, exhibiting a fixed white light 71 feet above the water. In 1888, the old stone keeper's house was replaced, and in 1891, a new 38-foot brick lighthouse tower was built with a fourth-order Fresnel lens. A 1,200-pound fog bell and a tower with striking machinery was installed. After the light was automated in 1941, the house and other buildings fell into disrepair and were torn down in 1962. Most of the Elizabeth Islands, including Nashan, are privately owned by the Forbes family. The lighthouse tower at Tarpaulin Cove is now maintained by the Cuddyhunk Historical Society. The society was launched in 1978 and operates the Museum of the Elizabeth Islands on Cuddyhunk. Paul Elias is a longtime summer resident and a trustee of Nashan Island. As a member of the Gosnold Electric Light Commission, Paul led the implementation of new solar power grids for the islands of Nashan and Cuddyhunk. He's also a former board member of the Cuddyhunk Historical Society. I had the opportunity to speak with Paul Elias recently. Let's listen to that now. I'm speaking today with Paul Elias, who has a long association with the Cuddyhunk Historical Society and is the point person for Tarpaulin Cove Lighthouse on Nashan Island. Thank you so much for being with me today, Paul. I really appreciate it. Good to be here. So, Paul, uh, you are a summer resident of Nashan Island. There's not a lot of summer residents of that island. There's about 40 houses on Nashan and the islands, the small islands connected to it. So there's, you know, in August, there might be 200 people on the island. Oh, really? Okay. They're pretty much out of sight when you're there at Tarpaulin Cove. I could see one house when I was there recently. I wasn't aware, actually, that there were that many houses on the island. Yeah, the primary cluster of houses is at the east end near Woods Hole. More people in the summer than than I realized. The Elizabeth Islands are a really interesting place, I think, but they're probably not that familiar to a lot of the listeners of this podcast, people who don't live in that general vicinity. Uh, what are some of the things that are notable about the Elizabeth Islands? In history, what's most notable is that they really represent a very undeveloped area of you know maybe 10 square miles of, of kind of Cape Cod landscape that really has its original forests and wetlands and, and fields pretty much intact. It has never been built up and it's carefully managed to be a natural environment. The island chain is uh, pretty much the border between uh, Buzzards Bay and Vineyard Sound, right? Vineyard Sound. That's right. It divides those two bodies of water. Both bodies of water have tremendous history, but let's talk a bit about Vineyard Sound. What is so important about Vineyard Sound or historically what was so important about the sound? Vineyard Sound was uh, was a tremendously important passageway in the, in the late 18th and 19th centuries for shipping traffic between Boston and New York, and even maybe for new, between New York and London or in European ports. Uh, what I've heard is that it was one of the most heavily trafficked waterways in the world, mm-hmm. outside, maybe second to the English Channel. I have heard uh, that. Yeah. Um, it was very, very important for commerce and uh, for passenger ships and, and a lot of things. 
And I guess that has something to do with the fact that Tarpaulin Cove, the little harbor on Nashan Island, got an early navigational light in 1759. Uh, there were only a handful of lighthouses on the North American continent at that, that time. Yeah, I, what I've heard is, again, you may know better, but I've heard that this was the fifth light, uh, kind of permanent lighthouse location on the East Coast of North America, or at least in New England. And that really derived from the fact of the the critical nature of, of Vineyard Sound as a, as a thoroughfare. And also the fact that Vineyard Sound had, had sideways currents. Uh, the, the tide ran very faster, Vineyard Sound still does, but also had a sideways component because, because the water fed between the islands. And, and as a result, it was a very treacherous body of water. And Eldridge's Coast Pilot, which is a, a little yellow book that many yachtsmen still use, began in the 19, early 19th century, I think, when Eldridge, as a young man, had charted these currents and hour by hour, you could see what was happening in Vineyard Town. And this was super valuable. He sold this as a broadsheet to the kind of square riggers that were that were plying these waters, the commercial ships, because many, many ships ended up on the rocks, sailing down Vineyard Sound, but ending up moving sideways towards the islands, unbeknownst to them. Interesting. The original light there was actually shown from a, an inn, right? Uh, run by a man named Zacchaeus Lumbert, which is a great name. Uh, and uh, I guess it was a popular stop for like coastal trading vessels. People like that would, would stop for the, the night in the little cove there and um, visit the inn. Yeah, I've heard that the, that in the 19th century, up to 200 big uh, big square riggers might be found waiting for the tide to turn in Tarpaulin Cove. Wow. And it must have been fairly tight. The cove is maybe a mile wide, but uh, but it's and it's got a sand bottom. It's a quite a benign environment, but it's uh, it's not very big, and uh, and that sounds like a lot of big boats in there. But there are still the wrecks of of a couple of ships that we know about right around the cove. Hmm. Um, that are that are buried in sand prim primarily a coal ship actually wrecked right off the lighthouse in i think 1916 and there's still lumps of coal that show up on the beach and stuff huh i used to see that in winthrop mass where i used to live on boston harbor seeing lumps of coal coming up on the beach must have been from a wreck yeah so the the federal government finally saw fit to build a let's say a real lighthouse at tarpaulin cove in 1817 uh, so the, the uh, Vineyard Sound traffic must have still been really busy at that time. Well, I think it, I think it very much was. Yeah, the inn, uh, you know, there were a few agricultural products produced on these islands. There were famous turnips, apparently. The sand is, the, the soil is very, very sandy and, and very poor mm -hmm. on the islands. But there were certain things that grew well. And there were turnips and I think cheese. And there was some livestock production but I think it was uh, no one has ever really made money on agriculture in the Elizabeth Islands, my understanding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in 1817, there was an eminent domain taking in which the federal government took seven acres of land from the then owners, uh, which was I think the boat was the Bowden family and um, the family of Governor Bowden of Massachusetts. And that, that same parcel, seven acres, is now been transferred to the Fish and Wildlife, Massachusetts Fish and Wildlife uh, Agency, which administers it to this day. It's, it, it's outlined by a stone wall at the corner of which there's a small graveyard around the lighthouse. 
I want to get back to Tarpaulin Cove in a couple of minutes, but let's talk a bit about Cuddyhunk. Uh, Cuddyhunk Island is the westernmost of the outermost of the Elizabeth Islands. And there, uh, there was a lighthouse there at one time. The uh, light was established there in 1823. And I guess it's pretty obvious, but why was that lighthouse built at that time? Well, again, I presume it was part of the same impulse. Uh, there were a lot of wrecks around Cuddyhunk, maybe more than 100. Mm. Um, it was really this big, a big reef that, that heads southwest from Cuddyhunk, Sow and Pigs. And, and uh, there, it's really treacherous waters. Um, so I, th- I think the lighthouse related to that. I kind of know the answer to my next question, but I, I want to get your take on it. And I haven't been, I was there on Cuddy Hunk about 20 years ago. So not quite sure what's happened between then and now to the structures, but what happened to the lighthouse on Cuddy Hunk? And part two, is there anything left from that light station on Cuddy Hunk? Uh, my understanding is that there was, and I don't, you'll know the date of this, I think, but they, there was a decision made by the Coast Guard to decommission that light. And to replace it, it, the structure was was knocked down, and to replace it with a pole that had a light on the top, uh, to the great regret of the people of Cuddy Hunk at this time, everybody is nostalgic for that lighthouse, and and that has been reflected in in a lot of support for the Tarpaulin Cove Lighthouse. It's not on Cuddy Hunk, but it's within the town of Gosnold, mm-hmm. and and um and people are are very keen that there not be a similar demolition of the only remaining lighthouse in the town. Yeah, um, I think it was I think it was forty six. 46 or 47 okay. when, it was, yeah. when it was torn yeah, down. Yeah, it was quite a long time ago that it was taken down. The, the Coast Guard has found themselves in the position of, uh, of managing historic structures, which is far from their mission. Their mission is to provide aids to navigation uh, and, and related, uh, related uh, things. And nowadays, since people don't use lighthouses really as their primary navigation aid, uh, the Coast Guard really wants to get out of repointing old brick lighthouses. And so they've they've um, they've tried to pass this off to other to other bodies yeah as you know yeah. when i was there on cuddyhunk 20 years ago and got out to the former lighthouse site the that uh, nondescript steel tower was still standing i think it was kind of rusty when i was out there i don't know if it's still the same structure there was also a, an oil house or at least the remains of it from the yeah. light station that was the only building still standing although i don't think it had a roof and uh, the foundation of the keeper's house was interesting to see. Yeah. Is that same tower still out there? Stan? I believe it is. I, I've not been to that exact site. Out at the west end of Cuddyhunk, uh, where Sow and Pig's Reef starts, there's a very funny ruin, which is these large pyramidal uh, concrete blocks that were foundations for, I think, military uh, radio tower that was right at the bluff. Uh, and that was for World War II. They were doing subwatch out there. Those fell as it eroded, that point eroded, those fell onto the beach. And the fishermen referred to that as Little Egypt because huh. you have this these three big concrete pyramids lying on the beach. And I thought that was a wonderful designation. Also out at uh, the West End of Cuddyhunk near the light station, there's the memorial to the monument, Gosnell, yeah. the monument. Yeah. Yeah. That's on the island in West End Pond, which is in theory where Gosnell built his little stockade in 1603 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one really knows. It's their conflicting interpretations of the, of the reports from that time. Right. 
my friend uh, Simon Ponsart Roberts, who I, I co-wrote the book, uh, Everyday Heroes, True Story of a Lighthouse Family. When she was a little girl there at the light station, she would play Gosnold, she called it. <laughs> Gosnold. That's good. Yeah. And uh, she liked to pretend she was uh, Rapunzel with her hair flowing down from the lighthouse, too. Excellent. But she had a good time. What other things is uh, Cuddyhunk Island known for? Um, Cuddyhunk Island is known for its its fishing. It's yeah. it's one of the it's one of the best fishing spots in New England with all the current and all of the, uh, you know, all the movement of water there. It's always been a uh, a site for striped bass and bluefish fishing. There were famous fishing clubs there and on Pesca Island next to it, where before the invention of uh, kind of before leisure airplane travel, people would come to New England and engage in this fishing. There were long spindly piers that that went out in, into the surf zone and you could sit out on the end of that long pier and, uh, and cast out into the current and people caught big 50 pound stripers and things. There's quite a lot of record books. And uh, that faded, of course, with the invention of air travel and people could go far and wide to, on vacation, but there are still sort of a few echoes of that to this day. And there are still fishing guides on Cuddyhunk who mm -hmm. take you out in a Cuddyhunk bass boats. There's a particular boat design that's really associated with Cuddyhunk and um, is perfect for those waters. Yeah. My friend Simon, as a little girl, went out fishing one time with uh, Jimmy Cagney, the movie. Oh, is it? See, yeah, see, I mean, the Roosevelt's, all kinds of people went up there to do this fishing. It was a big deal. Yeah. So today you can get there by ferry from New Bedford, right? Yes. And the ferry runs, I think, every day in the summer. But in the winter, it just runs twice a week, Mondays and Fridays. So you're really pretty far out there. It's a solid hour on the ferry to get out there. And there aren't many islands, for example, on the coast of Maine, there's very few islands that are more, that are further offshore than that. Uh, right. It's quite a it's quite an isolated location. Yeah. And there's no businesses really functioning in the wintertime. It's a neat place. I'm glad I had the chance to, to get on there at least at least once. And I've cruised around at other times. Yeah. Let's get back to Tarpaulin Cove. So how did the Cuddyhunk Historical Society become involved with Tarpaulin Cove Lighthouse? My involvement really begins with the adoption of the lighthouse by the Historical Society. I kind of organized that effort. Mm -hmm. When the Coast Guard announced that this could be applied for, that people could obtain these no-cost licenses to a, sort of adopt a lighthouse, a number of people surfaced, a couple, uh, or at least a couple of applicants from, I think, primarily maybe from the mainland, the South Coast, but also from Martha's Vineyard surfaced. But we were, we were very concerned. The last thing you want is to receive a lighthouse that is in terrible condition or that is, in, is on an eroding bluff where you will need to move the structure. These are very remote locations and to transport something like a lighthouse is extremely elaborate. And so we were very worried that somebody who had a lot of money would want to adopt this lighthouse as an older person. These applicants were maybe 65 years old, actually my age now, um, but maybe their kids who then inherited it wouldn't be so enthusiastic and wouldn't really maintain the structure. And that we thought the, in the town, we thought, well, you know, this thing's going to fall back into our lap in 20 years, and it's going to need a million dollars in repair work. And so that this doesn't make any sense. Uh, we really should 
um, apply as a historical society for this for this license and maintain it ourselves um, to be make sure that we are, are consistently keeping up with the pointing and painting that are required to keep the thing in good shape and also erosion control on the bluff. You know, if you're going to adopt a, a lighthouse, you want a very small one that's set well back from the water on a stable piece of land. And this one met many of those criteria. And so, we, you know, we felt comfortable taking it on because we knew we could methodically support it. The brick lighthouse that still stands there, uh, built in 1891, is now standing by itself. Uh, what happened to all the other light station buildings there? There was a keeper's house. Uh, there was a fog bell in a in a strange pyramidal shingled structure down by the water. There was a shatter too, I believe, as well. And I think in the 1950s or maybe early 60s, those uh, structures, or at least the house, was finally demolished. It had become an attractive nuisance. It had been empty. No one had lived there for more than a decade. And I think the windows had gone and this and that. And yeah. so it was removed. All that really is visible are some footings. It didn't have a full foundation. They, I think, were very good at putting these things up in a jiffy in the 1890s. And they had standard plans. And all these buildings look the same. And all the lighthouses look the same, or a lot of them do with precast elements and very standard structural pieces. And so this house, uh, so the house was removed and there is a little concrete walkway that runs down to the beach, the remains of which persist. And then some, a couple of, a number of footings for the house and possibly for a shedder barn. But mm -hmm. that's about all that can be seen at the site. There's a little bit of machinery, which maybe was a hauling device or something to bring heavy loads up this little walkway mm -hmm. uh, can be seen sort of lying in the pond at the bottom of the hill. But I missed uh, that when I was there. Huh. Yeah. Well, you got to get through a lot of catbriar and poison ivy to find that. So that's about all that remains to this day. And then there are markers. There are the, the lighthouse agency markers for the site. You mentioned that that lighthouse is similar to some others. Uh, there are a bunch of kind of of that uh, class, I would call them siblings or whatever, uh, Curtis Island Light in Camden, Maine, I think mm -hmm. it's pretty close to being a twin, and uh, uh, some on Cape Ann, uh, Anasquam and Straitsmith Island and Eastern Point are actually all pretty similar brick towers yeah. around the same height, yeah. So let's get back to the the island that it's on, uh, Nashon, and again, I've always thought it was pronounced Nashon, but uh, I've been corrected by you and, and somebody else with the Cuddyhunk Stroll Society and um, told it it's Nashan. Is that a better, better pronunciation? Yeah, that's more the way we say it, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Nashan Island is privately owned by the Forbes family. And I guess actually most of the Elizabeth Islands are owned by the, the Forbes family. Is that Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's right. And uh, what is the public access situation at uh, to Tarpaulin Cove Lighthouse, uh, to Tarpaulin Cove itself and to the lighthouse? Yeah, the uh, really the the policy of the of the trust that owns Nashon has always been to keep most of our best beaches open to the public. And the, the great granddaddy of all of our beaches is the beach at Tarpaulin Cove. Um, that's a, it's, I think, more than a mile long. And a lot of our shore is rocky. There's just some sandy bits. So that's really the best of it. And um, that's always been kept open uh, as a uh, for public 
access. And people have been extraordinarily respectful visiting the site. We very rarely encounter material amounts of trash or, or people attempting to overnight camp or anything like that. Um, so it's been a it's been a very successful a very successful place, I think. The lighthouse itself that we don't we don't permit people to go further into the island. It's really beach use that is permitted, but going in further into the island is to expose yourself to a lot of disease-bearing ticks. Anyway, um, it's a we have we have a higher tick infestation of th three or four species than almost anywhere. You know, Long Island, the coast of Connecticut, and these islands and Cape Cod have really high tick infestation and poison ivy and cat briar and all kinds of other unpleasant things. So it's not really a, an appropriate place to, to go inland and we don't permit that. But um, uh, the lighthouse itself has it, this, the seven acres that were taken by eminent domain in 1817 include a um, hundred yards of coastline and some sandy beach where I think they landed, but they also had a wharf there. There was a, there was a probably a, a timber crib containing rocks that was a wharf at the time the lighthouse was built. It no longer exists in that form, but you can see, for example, on Google Earth, you can look down and you can see a, a rubble ridge heading out into the water there that was the old lighthouse wharf. Um, and there are photographs that, that, it, that still exist that show that, but it, it gets pretty heavily beaten on in an easterly wind. And, um, and those things erode pretty, pretty rapidly. Um, but the, nevertheless, there is um, an, a significant stretch of coastline, which is owned by the Mass Fish, Mass Fish and Wildlife. And I think that it's uh, open for to, to, to walkers and visitors, as long as they stay within the perimeter, which is marked by a stone wall. And there's a yearly open house at the lighthouse, right? Yes. One of the one of the responsibilities that the historical society took on in adopting the lighthouse and taking this this unpaid lease and maintaining it was the obligation to make it accessible to the public, and we open it once a year to for a uh, for an open house, usually the second Saturday in August, uh, from twelve to two in the afternoon. Um, and at that time, we unlock the lighthouse and uh, and staff that uh, so that people can come up and take a look. I remember the first time I, I went up to the top of the lighthouse, I looked around, I said, oh, my God, look at the view. You can see ocean on like on like for like 270 degrees ocean view. And then I thought, oh, of course, that's <laughs> what this is. It's a lighthouse. It's yeah. meant to be visible from as much ocean as possible. So there's a lot of ocean visible in turn from the top of the lighthouse. Yeah, the cove is all visible. It's a really pretty view. So I was there for the open house a few weeks ago. Had a great time. Had never been. I had cruised past the island before and taken pictures, you know, from boats, but never had the chance to be on the island before. So that was that was great. There are a couple of things I want to ask you about that I saw when I was there. Uh, one of them was when we we're inside the lighthouse and the base. There's uh, this old metal railing that's kind of uh, leaning against the wall in the base. It's an old rusty metal railing that I believe is from the the lantern gallery or catwalk people call it at the you know the top of the tower. There's uh, what appears to be not a new railing up there now, but but newer than the the one that's down down on the bottom. 
Do you know when that railing was replaced? And uh, is there any thought to uh, restoring that, that uh, historic railing? When we completed the essentially the adoption of the lighthouse from the Coast Guard by the Historical Society about 18 years ago, I think, that railing was in place and it had gaps in it. It was a very strange sensation to walk around that catwalk and not, not have a complete railing between you and that yeah. drop. Um, it was quite heavily corroded. It's made of, I think, of, of cast iron, which is a very, very resistant material, amazingly resistant. I have a feeling that railing may have been original from 1891, if, in, in which case it had withstood an incredible amount of weathering, but it was really no longer safe or complete as a, as a barrier. So we undertook to, um, to replace that and we raised funds and um, we commissioned a stainless steel railing, oh. which was then painted black um, to replace that. It turns out when you unwrap that thing, it's about 50 feet long, um, which you wouldn't imagine when you're up there, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stainless steel in that and it was an expensive thing to commission. Mm -hmm. um, we, we cut the old railing off in that process and we just stowed it at the base of the, of the tower. I don't think that we would ever remove the stainless railing and put that one back up, but um, but it is you know it probably isn't an original piece of the thing, and rather than dispose of it, we just tucked it in there. I think yeah. it's probably stable in there. Yeah. Um, Wonder if maybe a piece of it could be displayed at the museum on Cuttyhunk. Yes, I think they may have one of the balls. There are screw off balls right. at all Anials. the junctions, and um, and they may have. One, in fact, I've got one here as the lighthouse keeper. I have, I oh, have cool. one that came from that um, from that railing. You can see the the threading inside. It's got a little note in it to explain what it is, I guess. But it's threaded. Yeah. Uh, everything was threaded and assembled. It was all prefabricated elements uh, like the stair treads to make the spiral staircase and the and the platform at the top of the stair, the ladder up into the lantern room and the whole lantern room structure and the parapet sections were all precast pieces. And I bet they could assemble that thing in their sleep as they built lighthouse after lighthouse. Yeah. Um, so the railing was a part of that system, but the part that was the most exposed to the elements. Right, right. Well, I'm, I'm amazed that that's stainless steel, that railing that's there now. I never would have thought that. I thought it was cast iron, like all the, uh, the old, old stuff that's still in place there. Yeah. yeah, well, we didn't want to do it again. <laughs> yeah, I understand we that. Said, Let's do this once and for all. Yeah, so uh, it looks we like thought it was stainless really... was the right solution. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it looks, looks great. Looks, looks perfect. Yeah, it's exactly uh, the same. And another thing that I wanted to ask you, I don't think any of us knew about this ahead of time, although I, when I thought back, I knew I had seen references to it. But anyway, what I want to ask you is about the cattle on the island. Uh, you certainly see them when you're going up to the, the lighthouse, and there are a bunch of them in the kind of clearing near the lighthouse. And as we were fixing to leave on the boat, uh, we went down to the beach and the cows also came down to the beach. We're coming down to the beach around the same time. They actually walked down a very steep path, which was amazing to us. And it was a hot day. So they were going for a dip in the, uh, the ocean about uh, chest high, I would say. So please tell me about the cattle on Nashon Island. What kind are they and why are they there? 
those cattle are belted Galloway cows. The island was about half forested in since uh, in the last 200 years, it was about half forest and about half pasture land. The pasture land had been created by tenant farmers on the island um, and was really there for the for the grazing of cattle to some degree, but principally sheep after uh, wool became a very valuable commodity after the War of 1812, I think around that time, very early 19th century and, and better breeds of, uh, of sheep were found. So these Spanish Merino sheep had very high wool densities and it became a very profitable activity to grow sheep and to harvest wool. And that was done for almost 200 years on Narshan, along with many of the other islands. Uh, the Martha's Vineyard had 25,000 sheep on. I think there were 2,500 at Narshan. The landscape, the kind of historic landscape included these, this mixture of woodland and, and open, open grassland. Uh, in, in more recent years, coyotes uh, have arrived, arrived on Cape Cod around 1987 and immediately arrived on the island. They swim very well across Woods Hole and they came out and, um, and consumed the sheep herd, the, the, the semi-wild sheep that were out on the island and maintained those grasslands. The landscape began immediately to convert towards uh, towards thorny um, scrub and, and, and brush. And we thought about how we could maintain our grasslands uh, with an animal that was immune to coyotes. And, um, and these cattle breeds, uh, the Longhorn Highland cattle and also the Belted Galways are, are kind of old breed cows that can, that can live well in a natural landscape. And so we maintain them uh, out there in large part to, to maintain these historic grasslands and to, and to, which also fosters the kind of ecological diversity of the island. Are there male and females there? There's, there's only females there. Uh, we have brought a bull from time to time in order to breed the cows. Um, and we may do that again, um, or we may simply purchase some calves to add to that herd. But the Galways have been very successful and they don't have the big horns, which the Scottish Highlanders do. They're, the Scottish Highlanders are very intimidating <laughs> with their enormous horns. Yes. At, at Nashawina Island, you can see the, the Scottish Highlanders, but we decided to use a hornless breed at Norshan for safety. Well, it was a really unusual and, and you know, fun sight to see these these cows ambling down that steep rocky path and going into the the water yes well they get very hot in the summer they're big animals and they heat up and they love standing in the water to cool down yeah and it makes yeah. it adds a dimension to to a, a visit to a tarpaulin cove to share the beach with uh, a large herd of cattle it sure does there was a group of uh, girls there when we were there these girls uh, went out and waited out and were trying to pet one of the cows and the cow wasn't real anxious to, to, uh, to be petted. Those yeah, those days. cattle are quite wild and um, we don't handle them at all. We can lead them places with a bucket of grain, but we don't, we, we never handle them. And um, so they're not used to that and, and they, it, it, they can panic. It's, it can be dangerous to get too close to those animals. Yeah, I was wondering about that. The cow uh, seemed fine, but was kind of edging away from them, you know. Uh, it makes them very anxious, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anybody listening who goes there, don't pet the cows, leave them alone. Right. 
uh, I got some some great pictures of them. Yeah. So uh, just one more question about the lighthouse. Are there any preservation uh, renovation type projects planned at this time for the lighthouse? Um, the, really, our goal is to to keep it standing and keep it as is in good condition, preserving all of the original elements where we can. In the case of the railing, we found that we had to replace an old element with a newer element that was a facsimile. And we got full approval to do that. Um, and we, we seek to keep the original materials intact uh, to the degree we possibly can. We did have to reshingle the roof of the little doghouse entryway recently mm -hmm. because those had deteriorated and that's really not that's really rough on the structure if you don't have a really solid roof. So we replace that, but with similar cedar shake uh, shingles. Um, yeah. So we're not, we don't expect, for example, to rebuild the fog bell structure or the, or the keeper's house. It's quite stable and it's relatively inexpensive to maintain as a mas simple masonry structure, but it does weather and we have to get up there. We've done two rounds of, of, um, of maintenance work. When we adopted the tower, it had just been painted by the Coast Guard and we painted it probably eight years later and then did it eight years later again. Uh, I think that was about the spacing because that seemed to be the interval that was necessary in terms of the weathering of the paint. That sounds about right. And it looks great as far as that goes. Uh, so it was the last time it was painted just a couple of years ago? Is that about right? Yeah, just a couple of years ago, we, we painted. And in fact, each time we've gone a little beyond. So the first time we replaced the railing. The second time we sandblasted the catwalk from beneath, there was the, those castings were rusting some. And uh, we had not really brought um, equipment up to deal with those. And so this time we did that. So yeah. we tried to pick, pick an item that might need work. You know, one day it might be the roof uh, or, the, or the glazing in the lantern room that might need help. Mm -hmm. But uh, generally it's a very, very solid structure that's designed to last forever. And we, we, we're going to make sure that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it looks good. Uh, could you tell me just a little bit about the museum on Cuddyhunk? The Historical Society has a museum there. Yeah, there's a museum of the Elizabeth Islands on Cuddyhunk. It's open uh, during the summer, and there's a you can find it on the web either through the Cuddyhunk Historical Society. I think is the right thing to search, and um, and it has a, a lot of interesting material on the history of these islands. The islands while now relatively remote and really used for more like leisure or summer summer use it, at those in, in, in the early years in the late 18th and early 19th century, they were really the front lines in the case of warfare, for example, during the war of uh, the American Revolution, during the War of 1812, there was significant action. The British Navy was the primary um, military force in the world, the foremost military force in the world, and was and was and was uh, active around the islands. And so, the, it was a risky and difficult place to live in time of warfare in the early 19th century. And people moved away after after 1812. Um, the tenant farmers left Nashan. Many of the families moved to Maine because they found it a, a hard place to live um, in a way that it is no longer. Uh, you know, but during the Second World War, again, there were submarines along those coasts, German submarines, and there were bunkers built on all those islands to uh, for subwatch. So again, just the coastal exposure means that at times one is is plunged into the sort of the, the, the foreground of current events. Um, we've also found ourselves 
uh, kind of at the forefront of, of, of alternative energy development because these little islands have always been self-sufficient in, in, in electrical power. They're microgrids. They don't have cables to the mainland. Uh, and in recent years, people have gotten very interested in microgrid as, as, as a structure for the mainland power grid. So they come to these lost places to look at what we've done. And both in Cuddyhunk and at Narshan, we have systems that are solar driven systems with big, big battery systems to mm -hmm. run these villages at all night uh, with generator backup. We used to just run generators 24 seven. And now we, we absorb sunlight in the daytime and, and use it at night. And that's, so that again has sort of pushed us into the forefront. People are quite interested in those technologies on islands. Yeah. So it yeah. sort of relates to the light, the problem of generating light in a lighthouse, right? right. This is how we keep the lights on now. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's great. I uh, wanted to ask you about that. You personally have had quite a bit to do with the, the, uh, the establishment. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an electric light commissioner in the town of mm -hmm. Gosnold and was involved in those two projects. Um, and I work with the Island Institute in, in Rockland, Maine, uh, on energy uh, sharing experiences with all the main islands, with Block Island, and even with uh, the Aleutians and uh, and the South the South Pacific Islands, there there's there's a lot of exchange of information about uh, about alternative energy solutions for islands. That's great. So today, what approximately what percentage of your power is coming from uh, solar on those islands? Um, it's about two thirds. Um, each of the islands has its own little has its own little solar setup, but the the, the biggest one, of course, is at Cuddyhunk and delivers about two thirds of the power for the island. The generators do run from time to time in backup if it's uh, if the load is extra heavy or when the nights are long or the weather's bad, we don't get as much solar as we need. At Narshan, we're just replacing our batteries now, and we should be getting more like. 95% of our electricity from solar as a result of the expanded battery capacity. So that's, that's been an interesting, um, been an interesting feature of working on the islands. Yeah, that's fantastic. The lighthouse itself, of course, the light in the lighthouse is maintained by the Coast Guard still. But is that solar powered? Yeah, the, the way lighthouses are powered these days is it used to be that you needed a eight foot high Fresnel lens made by French uh, prism makers. Uh, you know, this very, very highly engineered system to magnify and focus the light from a little whale oil lamp. Um, and, and now that whole apparatus, in the case of Tarpaulin Cove, it had a fourth order Fresnel lens, which was removed and is probably in some warehouse in Washington, DC. But it's been replaced by something about the size of your head, which is a plastic system with a little LED in it that flashes in the same pattern that the lighthouse used to. Yeah. And it's run by one car battery and one solar panel. It takes very, very little power to generate a signal that is very visible. It's startling. Yeah. So I have one final question for you. And of course, this is for bonus points. Okay. <laughs> what has been your favorite part of your association with the Elizabeth Islands and particularly uh, Nashan Island? Well, I'm a, a biologist by education, and um, and I think the really the kind of the role of the islands from a conservation perspective in the whole region is really pivotal. And I am very, I'm very, uh, I'm very pleased that we've been able to maintain the islands in a very wild state, 
and they're they're big enough to really maintain populations of animals and plants that that have trouble elsewhere and and I think that's been in a way the most special part of that place yeah you know, I commend you for, for all that you're doing there. Those of us uh, light, lighthouse buffs like me, of course, are interested in the, the lighthouse and the care of it and the history of it and all that. But what you're talking about, the, the natural environment there is, I think, the most important aspect of uh, islands like that. So uh, it's wonderful to visit an island that's so unspoiled. Yeah, well, I'm 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 glad that um, that people can come and visit the beaches and uh, and 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 also I think that the view of the of the natural landscape from the water and from Martha's Vineyard, for example, where there's much more development, has always made it a very very popular phenomenon it, yeah. that that you could go out and and sail along that coast and really not see any structures or any development. It makes for a very it, you can sort of envision what these islands were when Gosnold first appeared and, and took a look at them. Um, and of course, there were a lot of people living there then. And um, we've been, we've now have LIDAR overflights that have given us images of the ground under the vegetation. And we begin to see things, little excavations and things that may date to before uh, contact. You know, we, we don't have many we don't have many uh, vestiges of the Wampanoag uh, society that used to be there, but I'm sure there were many people living there before contact. Sure, sure. Probably mostly in the summer, fishing and so forth. Yeah, apparently they were seasonal as we are, uh, and they moved inland um, during the winter time uh, and came out for the for the clam banks and fishing and berries and things in the summer. Yeah. For people listening who might not know, there's still a Wampanoag population on Martha's Vineyard, in the western end of Martha's Vineyard, Aquina. Yeah, and there's a and there's a Wampanoag vi- village reproduced at Plymouth at Plymouth Plantation, which is very interesting as well. But there's a, quite an active tribe with three branches in our region. Right, on Cape Cod mainland as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the Elizabeth Islands and, and that whole region, Cape Cod, the, the other islands, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, a little farther out, but it's just a fascinating part of the world. And uh, the Elizabeth Islands, again, I think are something that uh, most people don't know about, but worth exploring, worth taking the ferry out to Cuddyhunk. And if people have a chance to visit Tarpaulin Cove and your open house day, visit the lighthouse, I, I recommend it. We had a, a great time and you don't often get to swim with cows. Again, you and the Historical Society do great work at Cuddy Hunk and uh, Nashan. And uh, Paul Elias, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jeremy. You can read about the Cuddy Hunk Historical Society and their museum at CuddyHunkHistoricalSociety.org. And the book, Everyday Heroes, The True Story of a Lighthouse Family, about Simon Ponsart Roberts' childhood on Cuddyhunk and Martha's Vineyard, is available on Amazon. I think you know a little bit about that book, Jeremy, don't you? Well, yes, I do. Simon and I worked together for more than 10 years putting that book together. She has so many good stories, and I know a lot of our listeners uh, correspond with Simon. And I'm working on featuring her in an upcoming episode of the podcast. Hopefully that'll happen fairly soon. I want to thank Paul Elias again for today's interview. I had such an interesting time visiting Tarpaulin Cove Lighthouse uh, not long ago, as we talked about in the interview. And uh, it was really cool seeing the cows. Yeah, he sent some pictures of the cows. 
Yeah, the cows went yes. down this uh, steep path down into the, uh, took a dip in the ocean because it was a hot day. That, that's that's something neat. I I never, I had no idea that was there before I went. And uh, I, don't, I don't think I'll see uh, cows in the ocean anywhere else. I don't expect to anyway. Probably not. Uh, so I had a great time there. And uh, I have some history with Cuddyhunk also. I, I visited Cuddyhunk Island with Seamond, uh, Ponsart Roberts and... Uh, your daughter and some other people some years ago, about 20 years ago. So I thought it'd be nice to focus on uh, kind of an out of the way area, the Elizabeth Islands for a change. Usually on this podcast, we're talking about lighthouses that are tourist attractions, but I thought people might enjoy hearing about an area that's uh, way off the beaten path uh, for most people. As always, many thanks to all the volunteers, members, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. To learn more about the organization, check out uslhs.org. If you work to preserve lighthouses or any kind of history, thank you for everything you do. We're all on the same team. If you listen to this podcast on a platform that allows you to post reviews, please rate and review us. The American naturalist Henry David Thoreau once wrote, and I quote, the question is not what you look at, but what you see, end quote. As always, thanks for listening and... Keep a good light. I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine